Hey, I'm Naomi Castro, and this is the Castro Pod. This season, I talk with leaders who are new to an executive role at a nonprofit or community college. They're changing jobs, transitioning during a time of tremendous upheaval. But just like my mom preparing commodity food with herbs from the kitchen garden, we will make a delicious meal. Dr. Chris Nellum is a friend, a colleague, a new dad, and the executive director for EdTrust West. Chris is continuing the great work of his predecessor while adding his own flavor. Okay, I'm super excited because I get to sit down with a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Christopher Nellum. Um, Today's Sunday, the 18th of April. It's a crazy time, and uh, and but it's a beautiful day out. So I'm so glad you're here, Chris. Thank you. Um, this season, I'm trying to focus on transitions, and uh, you know, this podcast doesn't come out super quick. We do not do weekly installments here. Um, yeah. My last uh, season was almost a year ago. Uh, and one of the folks that was on there was our dear friend and colleague, um, Alicia, who is now uh, moving on from EdTrust West um, with all the, the well wishes and the camaraderie. But yes. it's super exciting for you. I'm so excited for you because you are now the executive director of EdTrust West. So congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm so excited and oh. thrilled for Alicia and also really sad that she's moved on. But um, super, I'm super excited. Yeah. 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 But but I'm so I'm so excited for you. And we've worked together for a few years now and had like a, some amazing conversations like in the Oakland airport. And just like, you know. <laughs> like, yes. Never- in the before times. <laughs> yeah. Before times, right, right. And so I wanted to ask you, so this is a new position, a new role. Um, what has prepared you for this role? I think a couple of things. I have been reflecting on this question just in life the last month or so. And I think one thing that has prepared me is I have always thought of leadership um, through a servant leadership um, frame. Um, there are folks who want to lead because they want to be, you know, close to perceived power or they want decision-making, um, uh, you know, opportunities. And I think those things are great. Um, but for me, I've always, I think when I think about this role and I think about the last few weeks, it's really about serving other people um, and really like serving our team, you know, serving our our mission. And so I think that that has been a good set of just, I think, a good mindset to come to this um, role with. I also think um, I have done a lot of thinking about the role of organizations like at Trust West. And so knowing our lane, I think, has prepared me. And I say that because in the last few weeks, folks have asked me, I've been doing a lot of listening and folks want us to do lots of things. Um, Lots of things and some things that make sense and some things that don't make sense. And so I think it's really important to know, you know, at Trust West can't be all things to all people. No organization can be. And so I think feeling comfortable with the role that we play, which is in in a lot of ways an intermediary. We don't have to be the folks who know everything. We don't have to always have the microphone. Like knowing that those are parts of our mission and role, I think has prepared me. Um, And then I think also just always, I think back to my leadership style or preference, knowing that um, leading means supporting people 
and identifying good talent, uh, because there's no way that I could do this job without a really talented team. And so knowing when to get out of the way is, I think, and having practiced that the last few years, I think has prepared me. If anything can prepare me, I feel like I'm just starting to chip away at what is the job in its entirety. But those are some things that come to mind. Oh, I so I so appreciate that. I, I know uh, with, with my organization, uh, Career Ladders Project, often I'll I'll be in a position where we a, a, a partner organization or another organization that we work with closely will have a a position or an initiative that I really support, that our team really supports. But we have to be. Um, uh, you know, just just uh, mindful of the nuances and who our constituency is, and you know, uh, change management and all that kind of stuff. So, so like you know, and also, I think it's totally fine if our organizations sometimes have disagreements with mm-hmm. positions, or mm-hmm. it's usually more like no, we're we're aligned directionally. You know, like yes, yeah. the same end. You know, um, I might think, well, if, if you do this, you're, you're not my my friends and colleagues. You might not be thinking how you're impacting this other group mm-hmm. um, that's part of the system that I work with or, yeah. you know, and all of that is um, just learning from each other and supporting each other. It might not be strategic sometimes. Right. Um, yeah. Yep. So, yeah. so definitely like there's times when I'm like, oh, I, I love it. Like, it makes me so happy when I can say, so, so, so much of the advocacy work you do um, around dual enrollment in particular, which is, you know, one of my areas, right? Yeah. Is, you'll be empowering students and families and communities. And I work with mostly like the practitioners, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's so nice. Like, I feel so secure. Like, that's an area I don't even need to go into or touch. Like, mm-hmm. you've got it. I can refer people to you. And I feel so confident that you're just doing that just beautiful work there. Right. Yeah. I think that's, and I think it's important just to understand what makes sense and what doesn't make sense for an organization. So I hear you. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the whole servant leadership, like, have you always had that approach or is that um, something that you've considered more recently? So I know I should say, I know there's a whole, you know, body of literature that is about servant leadership. And so I certainly don't want to suggest that I sort of understand it in its entirety, but I just think of myself that way. You know, the role I've always been sort of, I'm an introvert. I'm actually pretty quiet and like pretty reserved most of the time. And I don't like things to be about me. And I think in the work environment that has, in my mind, the word that comes to mind is I can get out of the way. It doesn't have to be about me. I can serve others. And so I think it's just part of my personality. I'm not like an egomaniac. Um, And some leaders are, and that's okay. I just happen to be not that type of person. And I want to make sure that the folks I'm engaged with are, you know, believe in their own brilliance and can show up in all the ways that they want to. And it doesn't always have to be about me. So I, I think it's just sort of my sort of orientation. Yeah. So refreshing. So refreshing. Um, so you've come into this position during the weirdest time in my life, maybe your life. I don't know. Uh, it's it's April. It is a year and a month after the COVID-19 pandemic kind of hit us really intensely. The economy is starting to reopen. States are starting. People are getting vaccinated. This is a very, it's a time of flux. So um How's this been for for you and for your organization? 
Yeah, you know, so coming into this role, I think at this time has been fascinating. You know, there are people on the team who we've onboarded that I've never met, at least five or six, I think. And so that's a new experience. Um, But also, I think just this, it has been for us really trying to think about and we're not, we, we haven't perfected it, so I'm not going to suggest that we have, but trying to balance the need to, the real sense of need that we see to show up at this moment, to be in the spaces and places that make sense for at Trust West, but also to give our team space to live through a global pandemic. And that has been a, t- a tension. So how do we you know, encourage people to take time off, encourage people to care for themselves, and at the same time, keep the work moving. And so we just have tried to be attentive to that and try to give folks, you know, as much time and to remind folks that it's okay to take vacation days these days, it's okay to take mental health days, whatever you want to call it, take the time. And so that's been a challenge for us and an ongoing tension. And I think, you know, I think we've done okay, we probably can do a little bit um, better. But I think some of the things that have been really important to us through this transition, and I'm I'm loving that um, this season is about transitions because I think a lot of folks don't like to talk about transition. So I think what prepared us to sort of enter this is Alicia was transparent um, and it gave us time to plan for a transition. Oftentimes folks sort of move in ways that potentially aren't helpful to organizations. And Alicia didn't do that. She gave us ample notice. We got to come up with the plan um, with her, um, not sort of like in, you know, in crisis, trying to figure out, you know, oh my gosh, she's leaving in X number of weeks and we need to figure this out. We had more than enough time to plan. She was open about that. Um, And we gave the team lots of space to ask questions and then, um, and let them know that no question was, you know, out of bounds. And then I think the other thing that we needed to do during this time is I needed to be transparent about the things that I was unsure of, um, things I'm still not sure of, um, and just keep that sort of, I think that that needed to be in the air. It still is in the air. We're still giving folks time and space to ask questions. So those are some things that have been on our minds as we're thinking about this time and also this particular transition. Have you had any conversations about, um, and if and if you're not uh, free to divulge any of this, that's totally fine too. Um, that's the edit button. <laughs> um, but have you had any conversations about um, going back to the office or if you will, or, I mean, you had just kind of moved into that beautiful office space. I I know we, um, so, you know, folks who know EdTrust, we are part of the EdTrust family umbrella. And so there's a, there's a COVID task force that is thinking about some of these questions. Um, you know, we know Governor Newsom has signaled that, you know, he would like California completely open on June 15th. And I think he said many times, even office buildings he wants open. I think, you know, trying to jumpstart, you know, businesses that serve organizations like our, you know, lunch places and coffee shops, et cetera. I don't think we're going to be on that timeline. Actually, I know we're not going to be on that timeline. Um, we're they have the so the DC team, the task force hasn't um, said for sure what the timing is. Um, 
you know, we just finished our fiscal year budget and there are some, you know, extra cleaning supplies. So there are added expenses of returning to office, deep cleaning that our building is going to charge us for new HEPA filters and all sorts of things. And so we have the things in the budget just in case we end up back in the office this fiscal year. Um, but there's no real clarity um, on when. My personal guess is that we'll be back in the office in January. That's that's just my non unscientific um, guess, if I have to guess. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm I'm there with you. And I think something that this this experience of this past year has really taught me, if I if I didn't know it before, or I, I I'm I'm learning, I guess I'd say is just much more comfortableness with ambiguity. Yeah. Yes, I, the same. Yeah. That will be a skill. That's a that there's an asset for us going mm-hmm. forward. <laughs> just to let in some ways, you know, this last year has taught me similarly. We just have to sometimes let go and the universe is going to do what it's going to do. <laughs> um, so that's what I've been learning this year for sure. We're all, we're all surfing. Yes. Yes. Riding the wave. The wave that comes at you. Yeah. So, so I'm also going to be interviewing some folks and now I'm, I'm, I'm in transition myself. I thought this was all going to be one season, but I've, I've spoken with so many amazing leaders who are coming into their positions that I might break this into a third season. So I'm just being transparent when this comes out there, there will be an answer. Um, But I, I do want to speak to some folks who are um, transitioning out of leadership positions, either because they're some folks might be going back into the classroom, um, some folks might be retiring, all kinds of different things. And so I'm wondering, and and this will mostly be college leaders, executive leaders, but there will also be um, one or two nonprofit leaders in there too. So what what would you like to hear from them, from the folks who have these you know decades of experience? Yeah, I think I have two questions that come to mind. I think for the nonprofit leaders, you know, I think a lot about the nonprofit industrial complex, the competition that goes into running nonprofits, the ever ending, you know, uh, cycles of seeking funding and um, sort of what that means for the work that we do. You know, in my mind, if we were to achieve our mission and that meant at Trust West goes out of business, if you will, that actually is fine. That's a great thing. But that's sort of not how the non, not the, the nonprofit world operates. And so for the nonprofit leaders, I think I would just want to know, like, how did they wrestle? Like, how did they make sense of that industrial complex? How did they wrestle with, you know, the, the never-ending need to find funding? How did they wrestle with, um, maybe after being in this for years, perhaps not seeing the progress maybe they hope to see given their mission. So that's a set of questions I have for the the nonprofit folks. And I think for, you know, the other leaders, I just am always curious how folks um, stay inspired to keep pushing, Uh, particularly folks who spent their careers, um, you know, trying to make California or the nation more equitable. I think it's sometimes hard you know, given maybe the slow pace of that progress to stay engaged and to stay inspired and stay motivated. And so how did they do that? Who did they lean on to, to sort of maintain um, their vision um, over, you know, long careers? And so those are just questions I have because I find myself some days um, 
not as inspired as I would hope to be. Um, and it's only, you know, six days out of the week, I'm extremely inspired and motivated to do it in just one day out of maybe the month even. Like I sometimes you just can't see what the path forward is going to be. Um, so yeah, those are some questions I would have and would love to love to hear from folks about that. Those are great questions. Yeah. And if you have any uh, recommendations, feel free to send them to me. Um, I, uh, I, I'm also, I mean, that kind of brings up like, you know, the, the folks who have different experiences, more experienced than we do. Do you have um, like maybe a mentor or a group of mentors or a network of folks that you kind of go to? Um, I had a student uh, many years ago and he called his mentors the wisdom pond. And that he, he's like, yeah, sometimes I just need to go sit, take a drink at the wisdom pond. Yeah. You know, I was realizing I don't do, I have people that I consider, consider mentors and femtors and, you know, so Wendell Hall has been, he's down in Texas doing um, college access work. And so, yeah, there's a lots of folks um, who I, I consider mentors and femtors. I'm not sure if they see me as like their mentee or not. And so it's an interesting question that maybe I should wrestle with this year. But yeah, I certainly have people I lean on. Um, the chat part of the challenges, I, I also think it's important to lean on, not entirely, but folks who share identities in this space, particularly Black men in this space. I'm a big Black guy, and that means something in the space, not sort of just sort of representationally, but it means something about how I'm able to show up, how mm -hmm. I'm able to like question, how I'm able to um, be disappointed in folks in rooms. And I think, um, I don't know if I have enough folks to lean on for that sort of advice. And so this question is making me want to think about that some more and figure out who those people are. And I think the weird thing is like, how do you ask someone to be your mentor or femtor in the world? And so I need to think about that some more, but I do, I do have some folks that I certainly lean on. Yeah. Yeah, I know uh, quite a few of the college leaders, the newer college leaders I've spoken with uh, have, uh, uh, we, you know, we have these professional organizations who will set up really um, uh, learning groups, uh, mentorships, uh, and it's, you know, it's it's kind of weird because it's like it's a formal thing and like, you know, we're assigning you. <laughs> so that's kind of unusual, but it's also I, I, I think they've all reported that this has been incredibly helpful. Um, for them. And then folks like Dr. Curry, you know, talks about, he's got like this giant network. I mean, he just calls up people, I think, and says, hey, I need some advice. You, you've done this. Tell me what to do. Or, you're, you know, what's your take on it? And he just has such a, a way about him. Like, you know, if Dr. Curry asks you something, it kind of doesn't matter what it is. You just respond. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dr. Curry will call or text and say, hey, I signed you up for this thing. I'm excited about you doing it. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. That's great. But, you know, I mean, that's sort of, it's funny, but also it is helpful to know that you can have people that you can call on in those ways. It's important. And he know, and I also know that if I, I don't know if I would, but if I were to just text him randomly one day, I know that he would also pick up the phone and be there. So I consider Keith certainly one of those folks um, I can turn to. And you reminded me of something just now that I'm actually sort of sad about. Um, in, in DC, I started with some other folks, a network of black and brown um, men and women who were in public policy doing ed policy. And it became sort of our 
you know, network of folks we could turn to. And so we might need that here in California too, but I'm actually having trouble trying to figure out at least who the black men would be because there aren't that many. Um, so yes, I think networks are really important and I'm going to think about that some more for sure. You know, it's, it's interesting. I've had some folks um, talk to me outside of the, the first season that I did and say that they really, really appreciated that I was reaching out to black men in particular, um, but also to just this very diverse group of leaders. And on the, on the one hand, yes, absolutely. Um, but my, I have to, you know, like, what was my thought process behind that is like, these are people who are either friends of mine, who I love and admire and just love the work that they do, or people who I'm like, oh, I really want to get to know that person because of their amazing work. And so I, I certainly did not have a, like, I'm going to make sure I have black men. I want to make sure I have Latino women, you know, like I, I let's just, and, and I find that over and over again in my life. Um, I think because I grew up in LA, like to me, that's just completely that that's just normal. These are the the people you work with yeah. and, and you love, and this is just mm-hmm. no, it's normal, right? Yeah. Um, yep. I I, uh, I I did take a note this season. So you are my second to last interview this season. I I took a moment and I went, oh my gosh, these are all men. Where are my ladies? Where are my women? Where mm. what what's going mm. on here? And. I certainly had at the at my original kind of list does include this amazing woman, um, and we've just had a hard time connecting. You in know, schedule. because yeah, she's yeah. crazy busy. So uh, uh, I won't reveal that now, just in case things fall through. Um, yes, but <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but that I mean, I did take a pause and go, oh my gosh, this is this is a this is an absence here that I need to correct. Yeah, um, yeah. and. And I think that the follow-on season might might be tilted uh, towards women. Um, we'll awesome. we'll see we'll see how it works out. But that's just been a. It's like I don't know how to. It, it's such a different experience, I think, than so many people around the country. Like, no, this is normal. This is right. You know, my friends, mm-hmm. I'm friends with black men. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. It's just yeah. not, not because they're black men, because they're my friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or colleagues and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So cool. So I, I actually want to move into some rapid fire questions here. Um, I think these are fun. Don't think about it too much. Or if you want to expound, we can go there. Uh, but what's your favorite hot sauce? Oh, I feel like, Naomi, you wrote this question for me. I love hot sauce. Um, and my wife can attest to that. I put it on everything, even eggs, which she thinks is very strange. Uh, but my favorite hot sauce is from this mom and pop shop in my hometown. I'm from Brawley, California. So I can't get that. And if I can't get that, I'm a big Tapatio fan. And then third on my list is Sriracha. As you can tell, I think about hot sauce a lot. So those are my uh, hot sauce go-tos. Okay, so I'm going to have to send you, next time we're in person, uh, my my son has started making hot sauce. Awesome. We don't have a standard recipe because it's like a lot of what we just happen to grow. So what grows well that year? Um, Very so cool. Habanero and lots of jalapeno. And then um, I was born in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And one of my many brothers is still there. And a, a friend of his in college who was in horticulture developed his own chili peppers. Um they are phenomenal. And his, his nickname is Primo. So these are Primo peppers. So I need to, I'll bring, I'll bring you some Primo peppers, hot sauce, and some of my son's hot sauce. I will look forward to that. That's amazing. (laughs) Awesome. 
So um, what band or style of music do you just never get tired of? You could listen to every day. So I think I'm an old soul at heart. And so Anita Baker is like my, you know, on the weekends, days like today that are really nice and quiet, I can put Anita Baker on, on the, you know, Google speakers and I can just zone out. I, I don't know. I think because I grew up with my grandparents a lot of the time, Anita Baker is my go-to. I love her. Love it. Love it. Um, what dessert is the most underrated? Bread pudding. My family's from uh, New Orleans in the States and bread pudding is our jam. I don't think enough Californians appreciate bread pudding, but it is fantastic. I won't eat bread pudding outside of Louisiana. I, <laughs> like just don't I understand like, that. Yep. Or crawdads or yep. beignets. Like just don't yep. eat it. It's okay. Yep. <laughs> I'm with you. Fantastic. And then what is the best $100, uh, $100 or less that you ever spent? Or less. So, oh, so I didn't think about, so I might have two quick answers for you. The or less than $100 is when I signed up for match.com. That's where I met my wife. And so definitely the best like $39.99 I ever invested. Um, But the best $100 I ever spent was I met this. So when I was moving to Michigan for graduate school, I met this couple. They're from Arizona, a white guy and his um, partner. and we were talking to them. I was driving with a friend. We were talking with them and they gave us this hundred dollar bill, like for good luck. And we had just happened to stop in Vegas that night, put it on black and won. So the rest of our trip was pretty much paid for. Um, so we didn't have to worry about gas money, which was amazing. That's so sweet. Yes, it was great. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. And now my favorite question, as, as we bring this to a, this conversation to a close, um, what, what should I have asked you, but I didn't, I always think it's interesting to hear from people like why they got into doing the work that they do. Um, not necessarily the how, but like, why are you doing it? What make, what drives you to do this? And so, yeah, that's a question that, um, comes to mind for me. So, so what is your why? Yeah, I talk about this with, you know, the, our team a lot, you know, I know poverty way more. Um, intimately than I think I want anyone ever to know poverty. I grew up, you know, not just poor, but really poor and rural poverty. So, which is very different than urban poverty. And so I do this work because I don't think anyone in this country or anywhere really should have to experience poverty. I think education plays an important part in sort of helping folks move along or through, you know, the spectrum on poverty and wealth or whatever you want to call it. And so I do this work because I think communities of color in particular deserve more than we provide them. Um, and so that's what brings me to do this work. The, um, so I did not know that about you. Uh, and, um, uh, I, I, you know, being, I know I don't sound like I'm from Louisiana, but I really am. Um, uh, but uh, <laughs> I have, my brother kind of hear it now that you've said it. So I kind of hear it. Depends on what we're talking about. If we say beignet, um, yes. but, um, but uh, you know, we, my, my younger years were spent in rural Louisiana and we were outrageously poor. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like I, I thought that going to the trash dump was just like, but that was also normal. That was just normal part of life. That's where you mm-hmm. get furniture and, yep. you know, like things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, my, you know, I, I know commodity food. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I know all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah. And, and something I've been wrestling with, um, and I don't know if you have any insight into this, or maybe this is a future conversation is I, uh, uh, when talking to folks, um, throughout the state, our colleagues, um, I don't know how to explain to them how poverty can be a trap. Um, I don't know how to explain to them things like, well, you know, if, if your transportation, if your, if your childcare isn't reliable, you know, you're doing like, you know, you can't, you lose your job and you, you can't finish your class and mm-hmm. you, you know, and that, and that Pell grants might not be a big deal to you, you know, because, oh, students in California can get so many other kinds of financial aid and their tuition can mm-hmm. get paid for, which is, you know, I'm grateful for. Right. But like, yeah. no, no, that that Pell Grant is the difference between having reliable childcare and not. Yep. Like I I don't know how to get that. Like I even get kind of goosebumps and I I just did. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a hard. I think folks can uh, I think a lot of folks intellectualize the experience of poverty. And one of the things that I think a lot about, and so I think a lot about how to like get folks to not intellectualize it, but to actually try to think about the way folks experience it. It is not, um, I think on the one hand for me, I don't, I don't think I knew we were poor. Like, I don't think I knew it then. Um, but the very things you're speaking to, I remember my mom having to figure out childcare, um, or else she couldn't go to work. You know, like I was in Head Start. I was a head, I'm a Head Start kid. And so I remember, you know, the Head Start little bus and like the Head Start lunches. Um, and then I, the thing that I struggle with in the state is, I think folks who are living in poverty are actually some of the best money managed, like they can manage money probably better than people who have more money. Um, Like we knew every penny we had, we knew how to pinch a penny. And I think there's this idea in some pockets in California that poor people are, people living in poverty are bad with money and you can't be bad with money you don't have. Like, it's just really like, it's really challenging to like, help people understand like it's actually not about financial literacy in most of the cases. It's about not having enough money, period. So anyway, I just I think a lot about it. It's a experience I never want to go back to um, and will never leave me either. So I will never forget what that's like. I still consider myself, um, you know, poverty, PTSD, if you will. I don't spend money. I'm not my like I just I would rather save. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. 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 It, it maybe so maybe a future project for us, another passion project could be how to create some kind of learning experience mm. that really gets people to understand. Yeah. Um and yeah. I don't even know if that's possible, but but it's something I, I think would be really worthwhile. Yeah, I agree. I'd be happy to explore it with you. Good. Okay, that's kind of a bummer. How can we end on a on a on a up note? <laughs> Well, I think I saw some up, some, yeah, some uplifting things, you know, I, back to transitions, I'm really excited about, you know, the opportunity to lead at Trust West. Um, The organization is in our 20th year. We have always had, you know, leaders of color uh, and talented leaders of color. Um, I think one thing that I'm really looking forward to is hopefully being a longstanding executive director of the organization. I think we need it. Um, but I think what happens is there's, you know, thirst for talent of color. And so folks get sort of uh, pulled other places. And I'm going to try my best to 
you know, stay rooted, not only in Oakland, but rooted at ETW. And so I'm super excited about that opportunity just to continue to learn. I've learned a lot in the past few weeks about ideological factions in the education space and funders. And so I'm excited about the opportunity to continue to learn and lead. Well, I'm so excited for you. When when I found out, I just, I did, I jumped up and did a little happy dance. <laughs> yes. And I appreciate your card. I'm supposed to send you a thank you card back for your card. And we're just um, buried right now, as you also know, we're expecting. So we're also sending tons of baby shower thank you notes. So Please. I will get you a card and appreciate you so much. You have, you have other things on your mind, <laughs> on your plate. And, and that's also really, really exciting news. So I can't wait to celebrate some more. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Chris, this has been fantastic. I just appreciate you so much. Uh, and I just love Ed Trust West so much. And thank you. I'm super happy we get to work together and there's not many people I would wake up on a Sunday for and do this. So I'm happy we got to spend some time together. I didn't think I could be more fond of Chris, but after this conversation, I am a super fan. Chris wants to make sure the folks he's engaged with believe in their own brilliance. Those, my friends, are words to live by. All the cool things that Dr. Nella mentioned will be linked in the show notes. This season is all about transitions, and I'm making a list of leaders who have recently retired, or maybe they announced their retirement. If you want to add to that list, at me on Twitter, at Naomi Castro, P-R-O-F. So, it turns out, folks have been using the interviews from season one in academic papers. That is pretty cool. But believe it or not, a podcast does not seem to have the same weight in a list of references as, you know, a book. Some of you reached out and shared some frustrations, but don't worry, I've got you covered. You can get the transcripts of season one in book format. The link is on the CastroPod webpage, and you can find it on Amazon. Amazon.